I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. I just came from my fourth hanging this week. Do you think it's going to get better? You don't own me. I'm not your property. So take a shifty little beady eye over me. Usually when my mum says, I can't watch it anymore, that's when I know I've got to... <laughs> Welcome to Eyes on Gilead, our weekly podcast dedicated to The Handmaid's Tale. There is a lot going on in this show, and we think it helps to talk it out after every episode of The Handmaid's Tale Season 3 premieres on SBS and at SBS On Demand. I'm Fiona Williams and I manage our online coverage of movies and TV here at SBS. And I'm joined by my colleagues and fellow resistors, Sana Kadar of ABC Live. Hi. Natalie Hambly of SBS Voices. Hello. And Heidi Island of SBS On Demand. Hi. And baby Greta, who's being quiet at the moment. <laughs> and coming up, we're going to hear from Mike Barker, who directed this episode, but also he's executive producer and the supervising director of the entire series. So he's got some incredible insights about the show. Now, we have just watched episode seven of season three of The Handmaid's Tale, and this one is called Under His Eye. Aunt Lydia told me to watch you, to try and protect you. June escalates her risky efforts to find Hannah. Would you like to go for a walk? Emily must face her past crimes. Did you stab your supervisor? As the ongoing international diplomatic crisis becomes more complicated. It's in the interests of all Canadians and Canadian refugees that we keep peace with all our neighbours. And Serena and Fred contemplate their future in Washington. I think you both could make a home here in D.C. Now, this is a gruesome episode that shows how efficient Gilead has become at killing people. And I recall someone saying a couple of episodes ago that they wanted to see more horror in the series. <laughs> and I'm looking at you, Natalie Hambly. I hold you responsible for the salvaging in this one. <laughs> then I'm going to be really mean and say... This feels like run-of-the-mill horror for Gilead. Oh, it's not horrible enough <laughs> yeah. for you, you know? Yeah. And um, it almost felt like we were getting Aunt Lydia back, like the Aunt Lydia. And I don't want to say that we know and love. I want to say that, mm. like, we know when it's so creeped out by. Mm. But she just felt like she was back on form. There was a, uh, a few shades back to, like, Series 2, Episode 1, when, do you remember when they were all taken to that famous stadium, which I've just forgotten the name of? Fenway Park. Thank you very much. And where they were all threatened with being... Hung, yeah, yeah, and Aunt Lydia, of course, was the architect of all of that. Mm-hmm. And just so, so it sort of felt like that again, but not as bad. You know, I feel like we've already we've already seen how bad that can be. Yeah, it's probably telling actually that it is so banal in your eyes that yeah. that it's the hangings because it is run of the mill now. June comments this is her fourth salvaging this week, mm-hmm. and, so. and her face certainly gives the impression that she thinks this is boring now <laughs> in run of the mill. Mm. So I feel like it was serving a different purpose because you have back in Canada. Emily having to answer to her crimes of killing someone. And so here you have a handmaid that actually decided on their own to kill someone and now she's sort of being pulled up on that in Canada. Whereas actually in Gilead, all the handmaids are forced to kill people, multiple people, on a regular basis. And I just think it's just, I thought it was just so interesting how they have handmaids as murderers in one way and handmaids as executioners in another. Yeah. 
and more mirroring. Like there's a lot of mirroring in this one, especially the Emily and June again. Sana, what stood out for you this week? Do you know what? I actually really liked the ending shot. I really loved June snarling and stomping off camera and the, the music underneath the Fiona Apple song every single night, which yeah. if you read the lyrics, it feels like it was pretty much written for June. I really quite liked that part. Yeah. And of Matthew got hers. Oh yeah, oh yeah, she she got hers. And she did what we all suspected she would do. She proved herself to be a little shit, she did. <laughs> I actually feel really sorry for her, but we can come back to that. Uh, and I have a later. prediction about her too. We'll, t- we'll talk okay, about it. Okay, put a pin in that. Heidi, what stood out for you this week? I'm sure we can discuss this in context later on as well, but um, the dance between Fred and Thank Serena. Thank you for saying that. Oh, yes. oh my goodness, what an amazing and symbolically loaded and awkward scene to watch. I was cringing. It was so good. Yeah, well, that this is mine as well, That the whole ball scene there, because I was there when they shot that. This oh, is the episode. <laughs> and was that at the Fairmount Royal York Hotel? Is that no, it sh- was at Casa Loma. Oh, oh Casa Loma, love it. Yeah, this is what they were shooting when I was there. Don't know if I told you that, but yeah, back in March. So for me to, to say, ah, this is the one, was a was bit of a thrill. So when we heard from Yvonne Strahovski a couple of weeks ago, she was all dressed up in the ball wow. outfit then and was required on set to uh, go and do a tango with Fred. What was that like to see? What did it, did it look exactly like that on camera or was, you know? Well, no, like? because of course on a film set they do multiple takes of things mm. and so it certainly isn't as fluid as it appears now. So there was the introduction of... When they walk into the shot, Fred and Serena walking down the hallway and Winslow comes along, there were six takes of that. So, yeah, it was... And every time Christopher Maloney did a different line reading, he said something different each time. So it was... The curiosity was seeing which one they would take. Ah, okay, okay. I think he's a little bit fly by the set of his pants kind of guy. Cool. Yeah. I had a bit of a chuckle in that scene where um, I think it was Mrs. Winslow says to Serena how beautiful she looks. And I'm thinking, you all look the same. (laughs) (laughs) You all have pretty much the same dress, same colour. There's really not a lot of variety here. Yes. And in the costume department, sorry, I'm probably going to be quite obnoxious this week. Cause this Go one, for it. I got all the insider gossip on this <laughs> one. Though. When we did the tour of the costume department, the ball scene was later that night. So they had all the gowns there and they had showed the reference material. So, of course, with wives, they have to dress modestly that you can't show too much skin. So there was a challenge there, but it was also the fabrics, you know, there was lace and silk mm-hmm. and satin and mm-hmm. they were hoarding all the beautiful fabrics because mm-hmm. this is their time to shine kind of thing. But... Can't show a hint of ankle. Yeah, so I did. I did notice quite a low back on one of the wives' dresses, and I was like, "Oh, that's a bit risque." And then I thought the tango was rather sexy for Gilead. Yes, I really yeah. need to find out what everyone thought about the reaction to the tango because, by the way, they did that beautifully. Like, I don't creepily like- and beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't quite get a read on the faces of the audience watching them. Like, I I thought, how is this? being received. Well, I think they're just watching on and admiring. It was admiring? I wasn't sure. I thought I thought have they gone too far with a tango? Like once yeah. that once once Serena's leg goes in between <laughs> yes. the threads and I was like that's a bit sexy. <laughs> yeah. Also th- also she dips in submission at that point as well. So it kind of balances out. <laughs> they yeah. do get an applause at the end. They do. And this is the room where you're among friends here. Mm. Mrs. Winslow says that to her. And the, you know, the wives are being a bit cheeky. They're eyeing off the weight staff, admiring the bums. That was also rather risque. I was <laughs> yeah. like, okay. That's why we have our own peacocks to stretch for us. Things are a bit different yeah. out here. How sad, though. The guys get to go to Jezebel's and all the wives get to do is... I know. <laughs> just look at some hot weight staff as they walk past. And oh, touch God. no one. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so the ball was really kind of... It felt like Serena and Fred's 
entry into society life yes. in Washington. But I think my main takeaway from that was, oh my God, Fred and Serena are falling back in love again. Mm-hmm. And this is like the love story that no one wants to watch. It's, yeah. like, it's like of all the 5,000 movies that have come out of World War II, no one wants the love story between the two senior Nazis. <laughs> yeah, no. I know. That is the story no one asked for. Yeah, uh, The date right. night. Serena and Fred date oh, night in the, in the booths there at, at Casa Loma. Stilted conversation. God, they are so bizarre with each other, the way they talk. I was like, this is not how any normal person... I mean, I guess they're not normal, but it's just weird. Because I didn't, I didn't read it as... like It is stilted, but stilted in that way that when you are falling in love with someone in a way that it kind of is, where you still are not sure, it's still those early days. And it felt like, despite having been married for a long time and clearly have gone through some things together, it felt like... It felt like... Yeah, it felt... Um, very deliberate in that way to, to make them feel like they were fresh and new. Uh, yeah. Do you know what? Okay, this is the love story we never asked for. I hope there is a sex scene we never see as well between Fred and, <laughs> and Serena because you saw he like stroked his thumb around her along her neck and yeah. I was like, no, I'm, that's enough. I that's think the I tango see. is kind of the quasi-sex scene. Okay. I'm, I'm certainly hoping. <laughs> yeah. um, it's kind of like that train going through a tunnel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Champagne cork. It's all that. It's like all metaphor, not actuality, please. But this one, I, I love in this episode that... It's all about barriers. Barriers are up between people, real and virtual. You know, there are walls between people. People are speaking through fridge doors and it's there's a lot of barriers up, but also coming down in the best and worst ways. So obviously the barrier between Fred and Serena is coming down. The barrier between Emily and Moira, they've both got barriers, but they're coming down there. Mm. And, and horrifically is the barrier between Gilead and Canada coming down. I don't yes. know. <laughs> but yeah. What is happening? That was really disturbing, actually, seeing Emily manhandled by security in, in yeah, Canada. I was like, much. no, no, she's had plenty. Like, leave her alone. That was, yeah, what's going on well, in Canada? Well, it's horrific. The whole, I quote-unquote love, <laughs> I hate the <laughs> yeah. way that they do this, but the, that Fred, the extradition treaty to get Nicole back, is casting a net to get everyone back, to get the refugees back. Moira states it plainly that Nicole, Nicole is, a is a refugee under their protection, under their protection just like us. Just like us. They need to protect so her. she's making that connection. And with Winslow and Fred, that code of conversation of maybe we need to keep maybe Nicole there for a little while for political expediency. Traditions, delicate business. It's going to take time. Well, once Nicole's returned, we do our best to move the others along quickly. I think the plan is to maybe get that. Okay, that's the terrifying. refugees back. And do you know what this this refugee storyline is? increasingly intriguing to me because we've talked about how there's parallels between what's happening in the show and what's happening on the southern border in the states and Mm. um as natalie you mentioned earlier we've just seen this past week those horrible images of that father and young daughter washed up on the shores of the rio grande drowned having tried to escape to the united states and so what i'm wondering is whether this show is in fact getting people to be more empathetic about the plight of refugees or changing any hearts and minds, or as Bradley Whitford said in his interview with us several episodes back, that the leftist, you know, too easily buys into the idea of film and TV changing hearts and minds. So is this just sort of preaching to the converted, the already empathetic, or is it actually, you know, changing people in a broader way potentially because there are so many parallels week to week. I mean, you know, the drowning we've seen in the Rio Grande, that could have very easily been Emily's storyline as well. Obviously, the writers made it so that she didn't drown and baby Nicole didn't drown. But if you imagine that scenario, mm. there's one of two ways that plays. Yeah, because I, yeah, I do think that it is preaching to the converted. 
But I don't think it's trying to change their political views. But maybe if there is an empathy gap, maybe it's trying to bridge that. So I think that we, as a society, as people have like a habit of sort of going, oh, but that's not my problem. Yeah. And I think what this show maybe is trying to do and what I hope that it does is that it makes it realise that, oh, if I could have felt sorry for Emily and baby Nicole and that, and I know that I really did, like my heart was like pounding, I think, you know, like I was so afraid for them. I think hopefully what this show does maybe is go, oh, if I could feel that for them, having that level of of emotion for Mm -hmm. other people who I may never meet, maybe don't speak my language, who maybe don't look like me, maybe don't live like me, you know. So, (laughs) yeah, I wonder if that's, it's less about trying to convert people, but maybe more just trying to really push that sort of sympathy and empathy. Yeah. 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 If you've spent, you know, almost 30 hours watching this series and, empathising with this character and getting to know this character, suddenly seeing these things happen to them brings a level of understanding to it and a connection to it that you might not be able to get in a two-minute news story about a stranger. And if that can help you to see the humanity in that two-minute news story, then then it is, it is helping change. And what I want to say to that is I think what I find interesting about the show and why my favourite character is Serena is because what they are doing with her this season by bringing so much compassion to her character, by giving her elements that make you feel sorry for her and that you can sort of see that she's just not a straight up monster, that she still is a human being and and you can see her human side. And I just think that's a really interesting question for all of us, part of me, and this is... This is where I'm afraid of backlash, but like, <laughs> part of me is like, I think it'd be an interesting exercise for everyone to examine which part in their life they are like Serena. Oh my I think, goodness. I think that we all are, you know, so Serena is unable to see humanity in a really blatant, serious, egregious way. But I think that we all do that maybe on like a minor level. And I just think it's like, anyway, that would be an interesting yeah. exercise. Mm. That's everyone's homework for the week. Yeah. <laughs> think about that. Yeah. I mean, we all have blinkers in our own way. Your worldview, your own experience shapes your worldview and whatnot. Yeah. Serena is the worst incarnation of that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think you're absolutely right. That, I think there's so much nuance to, the, to her character. And she seemed rather affected in that scene mm-hmm. when they go to that house that hasn't been restored yet. Whereas, um, which is a nice way of putting it, isn't it? Well, more so than Mrs. Winslow. Mrs. Winslow is just chirping around about the decor and stuff. And Serena's like, you know, putting a a pillow back on its chair and sort of freaked out with the crib and stuff. And I mean, if that scene wasn't an example of how horrible war and like displacement is, I don't know what is, Mm. but I don't think she cares about the people who Ah. live there. She asked, I love the way it was a regular house inspection in every other way except for the fact there is the debris and detritus of a family here who clearly did not leave of their own <laughs> accord. Yeah. But, you know, they were Baptists, so, you know, who cares? <laughs> Doesn't matter. You know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But also, like, when you go to buy or rent a house, it's always, oh, who was here before? Like, you you know, you want to know the backstory of the place yeah. that you might be living mm. in. But here it's, like, it's just casually asked. There's a family photo there. These people would have taken a photo with them. Yeah, I do love the way that's framed, though, like with the, you see the photo and then you see... Serena yep. usurped yeah. them <laughs> in the way that's... But this is so interesting to me because I had the same take as you, Sana, yeah. in that after Serena and June had those massive words with each other, that was like an epic fight. And hopefully none of us have had epic fights like that. But when you have an argument with someone and you have all said things that you regret, there's always that thing that is still stirring in your mind later, that you still sort of, your mind still goes back to two weeks later. 
and I'm sort of wondering what was it that June said that Serena is probably maybe still thinking about. And I got the sense in that house inspection that Serena was seeing her dreams, like she could absolutely, this is like her dream house and she could see her future. But I thought that she was actually seeing that her dreams really come at the cost of other people's dreams. That's what I thought, yeah. I don't think she saw that. Oh, I think yeah. we saw that. I don't, I don't think I she saw I agree with that. you, Fiona. I kind of saw her as just feeling sorry for herself in the baby room because yeah. her baby was gone and then <laughs> kind of like thinking about, you know, the possibilities of this potential Washington future when Mrs Winslow was talking about the bunk beds for the kids when they get older as mm. if there was this kind of um, promise that they too could have all the children that the Winslows have if only they were to move to Washington. Mm. I'm in a very uncomfortable place right now where like I'm the weird <laughs> defender of Serena. How did this happen? <laughs> I don't I don't think I'm not reading that scene as she she felt empathy or like she felt um you know there's a cost to her rise as a way of being like oh Serena she's you know coming good again. I I think she's still a monster for you know she's probably going to take the house or another house you know she's not going to stop being her Gileadian self. But I read it as she's clocking a bit more the cost at which all of this comes, but yet still mm. forging ahead. Mm. Yeah, I think I, I would agree with that take. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> That's a generous read. <laughs> um, I also saw when Serena and Fred have their date night later and, you know, she talks about going to the gallery, but these are all these artworks that have been seized. Like, it's like the Nazis taking this all, is the, Nazi all stuff. the paintings. Yeah. yeah. Again, another banal conversation that you would have in the real world about going to the art gallery one day, mm. but it's, I'm so glad that they were able to, what's the lines? What was it Serena said? It's such a blessing that so many were recovered from the Art Institute. But I didn't think that women were allowed to look at artworks. They can't read and they can't write and they can't watch television, but they are allowed to look at art. Like... Well, I'm, I'm sure, sure it's it, very select art. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Right. And I wonder, I wonder which pieces they did actually save and, and what she was seeing. Yes. I'm sure it wasn't anything risque or anything with letters <laughs> on it. <or laughs> I'm sure there was decapitation just like left and right, you know, it was just everywhere. Were there there were probably vases of flowers and <laughs> sunflowers and whatnot. Yeah, right. Are they allowed to read the little plaques beside the no, paintings no plaques. telling them what the name is? <laughs> they would have to get the husbands to read that for them. Isn't that just beautiful? <laughs> get the audio tour. While we're still on the wives, Mrs Lawrence, we get a little bit more about her this week on her walk with June. And Sana, I think it was last week you said yes. you, you wondered about their childlessness. Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, oh, okay, great. An answer just a week later. Um, yeah, so I was right. Lawrence doesn't want kids. He never wanted them. And that's why they probably don't have them now. Yeah, that was interesting to get such a tidy answer to a question mm. that usually, you know, sort of hangs. Yeah, exactly. What else <laughs> are we going to know? It might be answered <laughs> next week. Uh, but I, I do love the, the interaction between them and Naomi Putnam. Oh, my gosh. Oh, she's gotten so big. Hi, Putnam. Oh, we thought you were going to die. But you didn't. You didn't die. She's beautiful, Mrs. Putnam. Thank you, of Joseph. Oof, awkward. <laughs> That's what makes me wonder about Lawrence's wife. She totally can't read social cues at all, yeah. which is fascinating. And, yeah, I'm just sort of wondering who she is, what her backstory is, and we sort of know what Commander Lawrence values, and he values intellect. So I wonder, is that what he values in a wife? How how much of Gilead is he really? Because I sort of feel like that's not really valued in wives, but I feel like maybe he would have. I just feel maybe she just was this really brilliant woman who's just who's just mind works in amazing ways so like you know 
the stuff of like figuring out the right thing to say to the other wife who's got a baby, it just is like this sort of trivial detail perhaps, you know? I like, figured that was part of whatever mental illness she's yeah. suffering from. Mm. Yeah, they're, it's, they're alluding to it. We don't, we yeah. don't know what it is. But, we don't um, know what it is. Yeah. yeah, We need someone, some experts to come in and talk to us about mm. it. That can be the next uh, question they answer exactly. next week. <laughs> Thank you. But when we get a glimpse at their bedroom, the master bedroom in, in Lawrence's house and I was in that room when we did the tour. So um, we've actually got some audio explaining the decor in that room because we noticed the peacocks. And um, yeah, it's just a quick grab, but uh, it's better to hear, hear them say it. It's Elizabeth Williams, the production designer and producer, Kim Todd. What we wanted to do with Eleanor is show how basically she's Commander Lawrence's treasure. And so we wanted to feel that in the room and especially her little alcove there, which which to me was like a beautiful sunroom which a beautiful sunroom yeah um i wanted it to look like a fabergé egg but mm. inside out um mm. and so that was the idea for it the inspiration she's his jewel that's so interesting i say i felt like we really got an idea or a better idea of why she stays in the room i don't know whether it's her staying or whether she's kept in the room i'm not sure definitely got the feeling she was being kept mm. from this episode and from June's comment to Lawrence at the end. You should have seen her out there. She came alive. You should have seen her. And the way he's so tender to her yeah. when she returns to the house, it you could kind of read that as this loving side of Commander Lawrence that we haven't seen before, or you could read it as this this kind of overprotective partner who kind of coddles her and keeps her keeps her kept. Yeah, and, you know, with the foot massage and whatnot. He doesn't say anything. He just tells her to rest, but then every, he doesn't have any other lines this episode. It's all silent the way he's he just giving June the silent treatment for taking her out for the walk. With that tenderness, I thought it was really sweet, and then I was bracing for him to be really brutal to June for putting his wife in, in that position. So I was bracing for him to have massive words and... Probably some fisticuffs with June. But yeah, no, he didn't say anything at all. Nothing. Because <laughs> I, I feel it's his fault because June asked about her, I don't know, way back in episode two or something, and, and he had a really angry response, which was something along the lines of, don't presume you can ask me about my wife, which makes you, like you would never ask again, you know, like his response was so extreme. But he has someone like June in the house. I know that he doesn't value her intellect because that's what he valued in Emily. He didn't really see that. Like he wanted to know, what are you actually good for? But I feel like in this episode, maybe he's actually properly seeing the power of June and what she can actually do. And she can she can push and prod people and she can manipulate them herself. Mm. And I feel like maybe he should have recognised that earlier and actually brought her in. The outing with June and Mrs Lawrence was interesting in that it's one of the first times June has not gotten the outcome she's wanted when she's tried to get into the ear of someone around her to see Hannah or to get access to something. And I think June was a little bit rattled by it. And this episode for the first time this season really made me aware of the fact that June is not building allies as we thought she would this season. She's losing them all one by one. This week she kind of lost the potential in Mrs. Lawrence in a way because she pushed Mrs. Lawrence over the edge and realised that she can't help her in the way she thought she could. And she also uh, lost the ally she had in the Mackenzie's Martha. Yeah. Wow. Which yeah. would Francis. be great to talk about. She very much did lose her and had a hand in losing her. 
it's, by force. Because we have talked about the fact that there was seems to be very few consequences for June so far this season. And yeah, this episode was we actually got some where she doesn't always get her way. Yeah. And when things go wrong, they someone dies, go you know, things wrong. go really wrong. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And it's, of course, as a result of walking to the school, having been observed by of Matthew at Loaves and Fishes, having that conversation through the fridge, as we mentioned, a little tattletale of Matthew did her bit there. But at the school, when June is, well, she's not really captured. I mean, she is, but the Guardian, I thought, was quite polite when yeah. he says, Miss. <laughs> it wasn't like, hey, you, what the hell are you doing here? Yeah. It was Miss. And to take her around to uh, tend, really, to Mrs Lawrence, mm. who's, who's kind of losing it at the gate there at the school. I was surprised she got so far. I mean, she stuck out like a sore thumb with the red against the white wall. I know. She made it quite far. <laughs> she did. Yeah, they're not very good. Um, guardians, they're all up atop the walls. I guess they couldn't see her from there, but still, it was Karen. Yeah. yeah, I read it that she was so close to the wall now that they couldn't see her. Yeah. But geez, like a primary school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looking like a high security prison? That was scary. It really was. And of course, the barrier with the drone shot, you could see she was so close to Hannah, but yeah, the barrier again divided them. And yeah, we mentioned it the salvaging starts with the salvaging, ends with the salvaging of Hannah's Martha. Today we purify that most grievous of sins, the endangerment of a sacred child. I I agree with you, Natalie. I think we needed to see June fail and see things go horribly wrong because it has been a little bit too neat in many ways. Mm. But I also wondered, how come they're hanging people in the city now? The wall was where they hung everyone. What's what's changed here? Well, I think the visibility, and it's as a deterrent, but to quell resistance, but also just to be efficient about it. There's probably so many of them. They're probably still happening at the wall as well. Like yeah, exactly. Just... The ones at the wall felt like they were there as a statement to keep everybody in line, whereas now they clearly just have so many to get through mm. <laughs> that, that these are just the ones that just got to get done. Yeah. And I think we can look to of Matthew for the way that the muzzle, the veil is being promoted. The way she observes in Loaves and Fishes is we yeah, should, should salute, salute their, their devotion. devotion. Right, you do that. She's suggesting that something they're taking on of themselves as a sign of devotion to the regime. She is deluded. (laughs) Much. Whereas I think um, we see in this episode a reason why maybe Aunt Lydia, for instance, wouldn't want the handmaids muzzled because... How can they tell on each other? How can they how can oh. they dub each other in if they can't actually that's say right. anything? Oh, that's a depressingly good point. <laughs> but I feel really sorry for of Matthew, which I kind of wasn't expecting. <laughs> but I thought that in this episode we see a lot of people's coping mechanisms. So we see how Emily is coping or not coping in Canada. And we sort of see June's coping mechanism, I think, so far this season, now that she's still in Gilead, has just been to push so hard to get Hannah out to the point that she's making mistakes and of Matthew the other coping mechanism is to actually believe in it and Mm. to think that I'm going to be okay this clearly is working the people in charge know what they're doing and to actually believe and uphold the system and the reason why I feel sorry for her is because at least Emily now being on the other side she always knew that Gilead was wrong so she has that in her favour whereas for of Matthew if and when Gilead does actually crumble and of Matthew is free again. She actually, rather than gaining everything, she kind of loses everything because the whole system which she had faith in is now absolutely gone as well. And so I'm just like, oh, she's so in deep. I actually feel really bad for her. I have a prediction about her and I think that she things are going to go potentially horribly wrong for her because she alluded to the fact that 
this pregnancy doesn't feel right or it's it's a bit harder. Yeah. Um, and my mind just went to, okay, is this going to be, you know, a really risky pregnancy? What if she miscarries? And if she miscarries, is she then going to be held liable for murder or manslaughter mm-hmm. or feticide? And there is precedence for that happening in, in parts of the states. And that's certainly the fear with, you know, the really harsh abortion laws in Georgia. What's depressing is that you said that there are precedents, not in Gilead, but no. actually in yeah. real life. In America. Let's just... Pause on that for a minute. That's exactly. Crazy. Yeah, I, I was doing a bit of Googling and, and it's, you know, it's terrifying to think about. But I wonder if that's going to be, you know, her her devotion to Gilead and the idea of the handmaids and the purpose they serve is actually going to come back to bite her in a really awful way. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, that's my I, prediction. I think she is this season's Eden. Yes. yes. I, yeah, mm. I would say so too. I've been yeah. trying not to judge her because I was tripped up in having done that with Eden. <laughs> Me too because I yeah exactly I'm like so aware of how we misjudged Eden last season I'm like oh I'm gonna reserve judgment here as much as I can and and wait and see where this goes but yes I think uh, she's in the season to teach us some kind of lesson and yes something like you've suggested is gonna happen I think. Yeah okay all right here to here first. <laughs> <laughs> And so with the multiple salvagings that are going on and the two we see in this episode, the topping and the tailing, ropes and ropes and strangulation is happening all throughout, including by hand. (laughs) June's attempt on of Matthew in the end. I was so intrigued by that because strangulation is such such a huge, violent act. Like you are really taking away someone's ability to breathe. Like it's not, not just physically harming them, like beating them up, which also clearly is bad, but like it's something extra again. And it's actually is, I think we might have discussed this before, but it's this ultimate red flag of in like domestic violence, which is once your partner strangles you, the next step is death. So to see June do that in an episode where we've been talking about handmaids and Emily being questioned about murdering people and then June having to act out executions. And now here she is really violently strangling of Matthew, who I'm also feeling quite bad for. But it's interesting. It's, it's such a police state and they really have no ability to do anything else. Like, like what else can the handmaids actually do? And they can't really sort of, mm-hmm. if she actually beats her up, she's left with like um, bruises and then June's going to get in trouble. It actually was sort of like the only way she has to get back at her. But I thought it was fascinating how all the handmaids, it felt like a prison, how all the handmaids just suddenly came in to yeah, cover to June while, June while June was just going off. <laughs> yeah, they didn't try and stop it. They just covered June. Yes. It's also very dangerous to be strangling a pregnant handmaid. Yes. Like that's, yeah. that's double time. You know? Yeah, right. Aunt Lydia would not look kindly on that. No. Is it June is really cracked, isn't she? Uh, yeah, she's definitely backed into a corner. All of her attempts at sort of diplomatic soft power of falling mm. down around her and she's resorting to violence. Yeah. yeah. And Emily, of course, has been questioned about the crimes, quote unquote crimes that she committed, that Gilead is, is charging her with. But Emily and Moira have that conversation. They reflect on the people they've killed. and it's In a jail like, cell. Yeah, in a jail <laughs> cell, in their funny. own cages. Yes, reflecting yeah. on, well, yeah, but who have you killed since you got out? <laughs> No one. Well, then it's okay. So that's kind of a precursor to, of course, seeing June take, not just reluctantly take the rope. She, you know, looks Francis in the eye saying by his hand. She's resigned to it. She knows what she has to do. And it's like, I've got to do this. Oh, my God. Is she becoming a bit like Serena here where she's like, this is the cost of me getting what I need. So be it kind Mm. of thing. Scary. Did you also notice that instead of standing in a circle formation, for the first time, the handmaids are all yeah. standing in an arrow formation, yeah. 
which was very deliberate. I, I don't really know why, but I feel like, you know, at least they've got some direction now. They're not just inward facing. That was, that was <laughs> the first note in my notes. Well, that's a good point, I think, to throw to uh, our interview with Mike Barker, who was very generous with his time on the day where they were shooting the ball scene. And it's where they shot the scene with um, Fred and Winslow colluding and alluding to getting the refugees back, sort of the the treaty. So there was a lot they had to get shot this day. But uh, no, he sat with us and uh, there's so much good stuff in here. So can't wait for you to hear it. And as I mentioned, this was a group chat with some other journalists who were there for the junkets. So not everyone was on microphone, so I have to paraphrase their questions. But um, yeah, good stuff. Here we go. Mike Barker. So, Mike, thank you for your time on this epic day of shooting. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. How long does it take to shoot an episode like this when there's so much going on? Um, Because I've done most of them. I've done over a third of all of the episodes since we started in season one. So I'm sort of, I get a slightly shorter period than everyone else. We get nine days. It's really tight. So you get nine days to prep and we get nine days to shoot. So it's pretty tight. I mean, the great thing is because we're sort of such a team now, you know, it's, we're pretty efficient now. And we have such a strong look in the way we look, we shoot the film. We tend to shoot frames where actors walk into the frame rather than follow actors around like everybody else. So it's slightly different. So we tend to sort of design everything before we get here. Like here, I know every shot before we start. There's no discussion. We're going to shoot, we're going to shoot the conservatory. So it's a, sort of, it's a scene in episode seven. And it's basically, it's, it's the slowly bringing back together Serena Joy and, and the commander. And so I've, we've got this little set, sort of sexy dance that they're going to get into a bit later on, which I'm, quite, I'm very excited about doing. Can we talk a bit about the overall look this season? Because, as you know, we've started going to some different places than we're used to. Sort of, We're in DC now. We've started spending more time in Lawrence's house. We hadn't seen much of that in previous seasons. And I know when the series started, Reed Morano had a massive book about the look of the show. But now that things have evolved and you've started introducing new places, how do you start to fit in places like modern day DC into a Gilead world? Well, it's not really, I mean, it's not modern, it's, it's, I mean, Washington is Gilead, I mean, it is Gilead, so, I mean, so we just basically, we, we, we convert it into our Gilead, so we're not shooting it as Washington. I mean, there are, there are notions in the future that we will go to other cities, but basically what we do, I mean, basically we have this sort of very Kubrick-esque, I mean, we have the, the book that you're talking about, we actually do for every season. Right. So, like, when, when I did The Colonies last year, you know, we, again, same thing, we sort of designed that all the way through, so it's all in book form, so everyone knows... Everyone has the parameters in terms, and we all have a colour palette in which we work. So like you'll see tonight when the, girl, when the wives come out dancing, there's, it's just lots and lots of teals, you know, different shades of teals. And so, I mean, obviously the costume is a huge part of it because as soon as you put those costumes into any environment, you start to immediately feel like you're in a different place. I mean, that's my favourite stuff. My favourite stuff is always the stuff in the transition between present day and Gilead. You know, those little, you know, those little tiny things like Luke signing, having to sign the prescription for his wife's child... You know, baby pills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, child protection pills, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> baby pills. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, th- those, are, those, are, that, that's, those transitions are the ones that I like the most because I think the audience can actually sort of lock on to what it is and where we're heading or where, where, where Gilead heads. So, 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 you know, like this restaurant, we use this restaurant. You know, so we use very sort of authoritative... Um, this was a restaurant where Serena and the commander had dinner one evening. And you can see here, it's, it's quite stylized, it's quite authoritative, and it's kind of bold. And also, we try to make everything work against the red and the teal, so all the sets are built to work against those kind of colours. One thing we love picking up is the way this show is shot and the change between a stationary camera and when there's a bit of movement in the scene, often matching June's moods. How do you decide how to frame a specific scene? 
Yeah, I mean, the thing that's fantastic about this show is that it's so director-led. I mean, it's a really director-led show. So we have directors coming from all over the world and they're all fantastic. And, and it's my job to basically translate that style and that how we shoot it. And we have certain rules, but one of the biggest rules we have is that you're allowed to break all of the rules as long as you can explain why you're breaking them. It's just about thinking about every single shot. So no shot is a piece of coverage. We never shoot a shot because it's a piece of coverage. It's, I mean, it's Kubrick. I mean, it's, it's those 2001 kind of frames. Is That's how we sort of frame it, and then we sort of bring everything in from that. And I've just done an escape sequence with uh, Emily, uh, which is pretty hardcore. And everything there is very violently handheld. I mean, very violently, almost to the point where you sort of can't recognise what's going on at times. Same with the openings, very sort of abstract and sort of surreal and sort of ethereal. So we're constantly changing, we're constantly trying. To... So basically what we do, this is the rule. So basically we storyboard the scene. So we'll storyboard the scene how it should be normally. And then we know that, that we put that up on the wall and that's how we can't shoot it. So that's, that's basically, that's how we work it. So that's what it should be in any other world. So now we can't do that. So what are we going to do? Right. That's basically the plan. I mean, also to do with authority. I mean, it's a huge thing to do with authority. So, so you know, for example, yesterday we shot the sequence where the commander Fred and meets Winslow because Commander is normally the powerful character in the whole thing, so we tend to keep his camera angles quite low. But this time, we sort of went right above him, so, he, so we're sort of diminishing him in stature. And, you know, so things like that. So everything we do is kind of a conscious decision. So you directed the first episodes this season, literally moments after June has decided to stay. How does the way that cliffhanger ended affect your direction? Um, well, the thing was, that, well, luckily I directed the, the final f- f- as well, so I mean, I, so I knew it better than most, although none of us quite knew what was going to happen afterwards, so when she <laughs> ran out of the tunnel, I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. You didn't know? No, 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 I didn't know. Well, I don't think they knew. I don't think anyone knew at that particular <laughs> point. Is <laughs> the truth. Um, but basically, what, so the way that the script picked up, it picked up in the immediacy of that moment. And so I sort of wanted to pick up on... So that's why it was very ethereal. Was, I mean, I've just watched it again this morning, actually. It's, it's really great. It's, uh, I just watched it with the music. It's sort of very ethereal and it's kind of very abstract and it's sort of... It's, it's basically breathing and voiceover and atmosphere. And you, there's not any real clear image until slowly it sort of comes back into shape and the story goes on. And it's kind of emotional. It's very emotional, the first one as well. So it's, it's, it's Emily getting out. It's Emily actually getting across the river with the baby and the baby... We think the baby's dead but not. <laughs> no, it, well, it's not, it's not quite as gruesome this year as, as last year. So just on that, of course, there was some pushback last year of people who were massive fans of the show saying that they couldn't go on because they felt it was too yeah. bleak. It was relentlessly bleak, yeah. Is that something you take on board as a team when you get the kind of feedback about how the show is being received? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, without a doubt. I think... Um, I mean, it's really Bruce's call, you know, as the, as the writer. He sort of sets the tone of how it's all going to go. But I think we definitely felt, you know, that the, the, the ritualised ceremonial rape was... We kind of done it. We've sort of seen it. We understood it. I think, you know, whether we needed to keep doing that over and over again. Um, I mean, it's still, it's still bleak because it's still about the oppression and the sort of lack of people. You know, it's things like conversations in supermarkets where they have to talk through the shelves. They can't talk to each other. So there's still that sort of weight of oppression in everything that we do. Uh, the drive is still very much to get the little one out, the, uh, mm-hmm. the daughter out. Um, but, but yes, we, the truth is we do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think, you know, I think because, you know, I mean, even I find, I mean, there was one place, we were kind of really lucky when, um, when the commander wanted to ha- have sex with June to force the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. I, for me, that was, I was begging everyone to not to do that. I thought it was just too much at that particular moment. But what was quite interesting about it, at that time, Trump was taking all the children from everyone at the border, which was tied into another part of the storyline. Yeah. And so suddenly the whole rape thing sort of vanished. It didn't even get raised as an issue. 
Right. And and just for follow up on that, how do you decide what you show and what you don't? Because, say, with Eden, we saw her big death in the penultimate episode, but with Emily, her mutilation was kept off screen and it was referred to as inconsequence. So how do you make those calls about what brutality you show and what you don't? I think it was, um, it was very director-led. First of all, you read it off the page because sometimes on the page it's, it says you see it and then it's up to the director to see how you execute it. Often Bruce will write it that it is out so we don't have to see it because just simply because it's become so relentless and often what you don't see is more powerful than what you do. So, you know, so we play that line. But, you know, it's a very difficult line all the time. I mean, this... And I think also the way Bruce does stuff is just when you all expect, you think you know where it's going, he turns it around and does something very dramatically different. He loves that idea of leading you all down a path where you think you're going. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is quite interesting. This season's very different still. It feels quite... I mean, I don't know what the whole thing will be like because we haven't read the last three episodes. I don't know what my finale is yet. I don't know what I'm going to do. But it feels like more anthology. You know, it's, it's much less of a series. It's much more of a series of events, which is kind of interesting. It's been quite interesting to make so for the directors. So certainly with season two, there was very much a sense of June's in, she's out, she's free, she's back. But now we're in season three and she has decided to stay. It doesn't seem like there is even a question anymore of her getting out. It seems to be that she's just building up to overthrow Gilead. Is that how you would depict it? Or how would you depict it? Well, I mean, it, you know, it's, it is the Handmaid's Tale. It's not about Gilead. I mean, you know, it's so, I mean, so it's very much her personal story and it's her personal journey. I think there is definitely the beginnings of this network of uprising. But I mean, I, don't, I genuinely don't know where it's going to end up. I mean, I know what the target is. You know, literally sometimes we read the outlines and the scripts come back and they're not the same. And you've mentioned how director-led this show is. We have to talk about the visuals because, you know, they are so strong and the way they complement the story, how, how you approach that leading this team of directors. You must be so proud of the way that the visuals complement this strong story in The Handmaid's Tale. We're very lucky because, we, I mean, on the whole, we don't have writers here either. So we, it's just the directors are on the set. Because so often, you know, in American TV, what will happen is if I shoot you here and a writer says, I really want to see your lips, then suddenly you're, in, you're obliged to come here. So suddenly their vision is broken. So by allowing the directors to sort of make those decisions and run those things, it makes a huge difference in terms of the look, you know, the look of the show. And, and like you said, Reed sort of sets... You know, I think we've moved on quite a lot from when Reed came in. I mean, we've moved on, I mean, I think quite significantly. And every director that comes in... I mean, they're, they're nearly all women as well. We have a rule that most directors are women on the show. Um, we try to make it uh, over 50% on every, every block. I think this year I'm the only guy, except for our DP did one episode when he left. And they're great. They come from Australia. We've got Dana Reed yeah. in at the moment. We've got Derba Walsh from Ireland. We've got, you know, we've got some really great guy, uh, you know, girls in, women in. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say guys. Uh, and, and, then, and then in terms of the look of this, you know, in terms of the tone of the material we're handling, I mean, it's actually a very funny set. I mean, it's a lot of fun. You know, there's, you know, it's incredibly light-hearted. In fact, I'll show you a little video, which no one else has seen, which, which, uh, which I did the other day, which is basically because... I shouldn't... I mean, no one's seen, no one's seen this, but it, I think it's hysterical. It was basically we were having a, a really tough scene, and so I got the girls to... Uh, I'll just come back in here because um, Mike Barker then spent the next few minutes trying to find this video from his phone. He located it in an email from Elizabeth Moss in the end. Uh, and you've probably seen it now. It's the video of Yvonne and Elizabeth Moss and Aunt Lydia marching and, and dancing. It's a, it's a cute clip that they shot on a really bleak day of filming. And, uh, yeah, it's done the round. It's quite so, you know, fun. So that's, that's kind, you know, we sort of try to, you know, we try to have as much 
because it is kind of bleak. I mean, you know, it is bleak, and you know, and, you know, it's very, it's a tough, it's a tough show to make. You know, there's just the very subject matter. You know, we have a real frankness about what goes on. And Lizzie and I, we meet up every Sunday, so we go through everything beforehand. So we're very prepped before we turn up. We go through the whole script. We have an incredibly frank relationship about everything um, in a way that I've never had before with anybody, you know, which is, can be good and bad. But it's fantastic, and I think that kind of honesty about what we're doing, that the sort of, in terms of the, that moral line that we follow, you know, I think we're constantly asking each other and questioning each other. There's a big issue right now, which I won't talk about because it's not my um, episode. So do you follow the fan response to this show? Uh, I mean, this is a very active and engaged audience. Yeah, I do. I do. So, I mean, I, yeah, I do. Sort of a little bit. I'm not, I'm not, that, I'm not that sort of... Uh, I mean, it's, usually when my mum says, I can't watch it anymore, that's when I know I've got to... Because <laughs> she can watch anything I do. <laughs> and on that, the response to the finale, for instance, not everyone was wild about the fact she stays. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people were quite disappointed that she didn't get out the door. But I think we sort of knew that. I think we knew that was, you know, we, you know but at the same time, it's quite interesting. The more people we put in Toronto, the harder it gets to tell the story of Gilead and, you know, The Handmaid's Tale. So she's definitely going to stay for a few more seasons, mm. I'd have thought. And so do you know how many seasons there'll be of this show? I mean, Bruce Miller mentioned 10. Is that likely? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think there are probably one more, I suspect. One or two or three. I mean, he promised ten. Yeah. I mean, he promised ten, but, I mean, I, I mean who knows, maybe. Uh, I couldn't do ten of this show. That would kill me. Yeah, I literally don't know. I mean, it's such a closed secret. It's such a closely guarded secret. And I think no-one really knows either because, you know, there's also the commercial part of it. And let's talk about the use of music because uh, how do you decide what song you're going to end the episode with or indeed if there will be a song? Is that always director's choice? It's, it's always the most contentious choice of everything, every single conversation. Everyone has an opinion about the song at the end. I mean, I, I, episode two last season, I didn't put a song on at all. Yes. I, used the, I used the soundtrack of the football game. I put that one on and no one changed it. But usually those songs change 300 times. I mean, literally, everyone's a music expert. It's, but it's, but it's, it's always a contentious issue, the, the soundtrack. I mean, the score is, you know, obviously, I, I mean, I, I love this. We've got a great composer. So, I mean, I, I tend to sort of lean into the... I mean, I always cut with, with score, and the music comes afterwards. Usually, the songs come afterwards. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Dana Reed. She, of course, did that incredible birth episode last year. How much were you involved in that as well and the staging of it? Because, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. It was incredible. Yeah, I mean, she should really talk about that. I mean, that was all Dana. I mean, it was all Dana. There was, I mean, so basically her... Because it was quite a tough script, that one, because basically it was all in one room. And, you know, so it's, you know, it was all in that house in one room. And she, we have a fantastic DP called Zoe White as well, who's kind of... who's going to be shooting for me today as well. She's amazing. So basically the two, Dana and her basically worked out that plan. And I actually went to the location. I was, not, I was a bit unsure about where they were doing it and how it was working out. But they were so convincing and it was actually, you know, you saw it, it was pretty amazing what they did. But it was a real, you know, the thing about Elizabeth Moss is once she's on board with an idea, it's 100%. She's the, the single most hardworking person I've ever met, ever. I mean, today she sent me 15, we finished filming at 1.30 last night, 2 o'clock in the morning. She sent me 15 emails today about cuts, score, music, dresses. I mean, she's literally non-stop. And so that's what we do on the Sunday meetings. We'll get together. We'll all talk about what the core of the idea is and how we're going to take the script and make it into something special. 
I usually cook lunch and we all hang out and it, you know and we and, it, and it's a really great thing where we just all sort of because we're all sort of orphans in somebody else's city, so it's actually you know we don't have families to go back to most of us, so this becomes everything, and we all live very close to each other. And so basically, that was all Dana and Lizzie and Zoe. They just they came up with the whole thing themselves and. Uh, and shot it themselves because the bravery of that was really allowing Elizabeth Moss to go into that space and be that exposed and be that much of a sort of, you know, crazed, wild, desperate woman in that moment. I mean, you know, so, you know, that's, that's real bravery. I mean, think about Lizzie Moss, you don't, you, we never have to worry about what she looks like on camera. You know, she's the least vain person you'll come across. It's amazing. Well, Mike Barker, thank you so much. You've been really generous with your time on what's going to be a very busy night ahead. Uh, thank you so much. I'm sure I'll see you a bit later. Thank you. It's funny how he says that everyone thinks they're an expert on music because I'm the opposite. Like, I know nothing about music, so I'm always reluctant to talk about the music on the show. But I think it's interesting that so much thought goes into the show. Everything is so deliberate. Whereas something like the music is always played for great effect and it, it can be very, very jarring. And it's amazing how it can actually change how you feel about the show. So despite all the amazing acting and the costuming and the directing, it could just be one bad song choice, which sort of just ruins the whole thing for you. <laughs> <laughs> and on the music, um, the tango with Fred and Serena, that is beautiful, the music that plays while they're doing that. And this is really macabre, but the way that then the same music cue works for the hanging and the salvaging, like the same, if you listen again, oh, did it? There's, there's the similar kind of music and Ooh. it's, this is terrible, but the way the bodies kind of dance at the end, it, it's just a, oh my goodness. the way that kind of mirrors that and people looking on like they were looking on oh, with the so tango. Creepy. It's horrible. Sorry. Let's move on. Let's look at the cute baby. There's a cute baby in the room. Let's change it. Subject. No, that's, that's a really interesting thought, though. I didn't catch up. You know, I didn't I catch on that. But um. yeah, no, I mean, because the music is stunning. And then I heard the same cue, and oh god! So I went back to listen to it, and yeah, it, it flows through. Ugh. I didn't pick that up because I was too busy thinking that the music in that tango scene reminded me so much of uh, Wonka Wise in the mood I for love. Same. Absolutely um, the same. And like the amazing soundtrack that that movie had. And I couldn't help but thinking they were trying to make a reference to that. And yet then the, the song kind of descends into this creepy sounding other that does not remind me of that song. But uh, yeah, I was I was being held in that moment by the similarities to that piece of music. I did absolutely the same. And I thought it can't be like, it, it's so reminiscent of that that's maybe the most beautiful movie score <laughs> for oh, me. And that, that, I, that is my favourite movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stunner. It's so interesting that you thought the same thing. I wonder if that was intentional then. Okay, I've got a new movie recommendation to check out. I have not seen it. You absolutely should see In the Mood for Love. All right, that was that. <laughs> that happened. Uh, so that is episode seven. What? We're up to episode eight now? Wow. Time for predictions. Sana, I'm looking to you. Okay, so I talked about last week how June's storyline is at the very dip of her journey. I think we've definitely dipped a bit further. But I want to talk about Fred and Serena because I think their journey is on the upswing before the dip down. And I think what's going to happen is that Serena's going to find out that Fred actually does manoeuvre to keep Nicole in Canada longer um, for the political expediency of it all, even though she's cottoned on to that being a possibility and he's mm. told her no, no. I think she's going to find out that that happens and that'll be the kaboom in their relationship that, you know, takes them downwards. Okay. Natalie, what about you? I'm excited about Emily. I think that she has 
great potential to be what Serena was to the building of Gilead. I think Emily has a potential to be maybe like, she's kind of like the anti-Gilead. So she is someone, I think Moira realizes towards the end that Emily actually has a really great story to tell. She is the handmaid who survived, who has had unspeakable things happen to her, who brought baby Nicole and baby Nicole's in all the news. So Emily could look really great on television. She could be really good at speaking events. All the things that Serena did to help support Gilead before Gilead actually started, I feel like maybe Emily could be doing that role to bring down Gilead. I don't know whether that's whether that's mm. where the show is going to take her. I but think they're I a great like that idea. Yeah, yeah. I think they're a great double act. I love the Moira Emily thread here. Like Emily can't speak to her partner, even though her like Sylvia wants to be there. She's saying, "I don't care that she, you killed people," but Emily still can't tell her about that one other person she killed <laughs> and the way they open up to each other. But at first, though, in the cafe, it's awkward. They're talking literally about the material business of the political manoeuvring. And then they're talking about what they did, but it's a really banal conversation about, oh, I like the people I used to work with. It's like, yeah, sure. But then they actually start bonding and the, you know, who do you used to date? How, how do we not know any other lesbians? Like, that's quite, <laughs> that was so <laughs> funny. funny. Yeah, it's a great scene. So I do love the way that it's through Moira that Emily's starting to reconnect and she's opening because they share the same trauma. Like you can, act, they know, they can empathise literally with each other. Yeah, I like the way that Moira brought Emily out of shell. Moira's doing that for everyone. <laughs> Moira's helping everyone. Who's helping Moira? How great is Moira? I mean, she knows exactly the level-headed thing to say to, yep. to help the situation. And I mean, we saw her go through some of her trauma processing last season and I know she still has issues, but she seems to have it so together for a Gilead survivor. She's like the the poster child for uh, surviving Gilead. And yeah. yeah, I hope she can continue to... I hope Help it's Emily. not a front. I, I, yeah, we're not getting a lot of Moira. We're getting a lot of Moira helping other people. Love Moira. Would love some more about how she's coping or not in Canada. Haiti, what is your prediction? We've said this a few times, I think, that uh, <laughs> there have been hints that we will get a Lydia backstory this season. <gasps> and we've seen a little bit of her inner world this season with her reaction to the Janine beating. But I really think that we're, st- we're still yet to see more of, of Aunt Lydia and, and hopefully some actual backstory. And so that's what I'm expecting soon. Yeah, same. We, we need to. I've been wanting that for two and a half seasons now. <laughs> I'm actually quite afraid of getting it, though. I don't think I want it anymore because to get an Aunt Lydia backstory means something really horrific has to happen that she probably does to make us want to go back in time <laughs> to fully understand that better. As opposed to all the other hideous things that have happened. (laughs) It's just that one extra thing that's going to tip us over. I'm anticipating more conflicting feelings towards the villains in this show where we're sympathising with them, but we still hate them. I'm not. Just the female villains. Just the female female villains. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm not really going to speculate. I just think it's this whole thing of the detail of the trying to get Nicole back, but then I I honestly think the way that they're manoeuvring is get the escapees back, get the refugees back. And my fear is that they're going to try and get Emily and Moira back into Gilead. So anyway, that's a really depressing note. That's really horrifying. I didn't, I I didn't actually see that. I think maybe, maybe I'm sort of blocking that off from myself so I wouldn't be so depressed, but oh, that's really awful. That's very un-Canadian like. I don't think it's likely. It's not going to (laughs) happen. Well, yeah, yeah, well that, that minister. I know. know, He was was a bit hawkish, wasn't he? Or just not very forthcoming. My thoughts were, what would Sana make of all this? It's it's very un-Canadian like is what I think. They need to be fully behind the refugees is what I say. Mm, (laughs) Amen to that. All right. 
Thank you for listening. We hope that helped. And special thanks to my co-hosts, Sana Kadar, Natalie Hambly and Haiti Island and baby Greta, who had a little gurgle in there, I think. It was very cute. And thank you for listening. Um, we love hearing your comments about this show and about this podcast. And we are loving what you're saying on Twitter using the hashtag Eyes on Gilead. There's some very smart observations happening here. Um, special shout out to Jules, who gave us the hat tip when we noticed, we've been noticing the fire and the water here happening here. And Sunny, you've been saying, where's the wind? Mm-hmm. We need the wind for all the elements. Jules very observantly noticed that, uh, hello, Chicago, it's called the Windy City. <laughs> That's our wind. <laughs> yeah, we all leapt on that one. Yeah. Very, very great connection. Very good. Um, any other ones people have noticed? Um, I think my favourite one was a really it's a really small throwaway one, but someone said that Luke is letting down town planners everywhere. <laughs> and Because he was did. a town planner. Yes, yep. <laughs> a professional observation in that one there. That was funny. And also, hat tip to Brooke, one listener who she's only just started watching the whole series, but she binged the series to date, one, two, and most of three in a fortnight. So, I mean, wow. <laughs> stay stay strong, Brooke. Exactly. <laughs> so, as they've all done, they're using the hashtag Eyes on Gilead. So, absolutely do the same. And if you want to reach out to us on Twitter, uh, you can find me at anything but Fifi. Sana, where can we find you? At Sana underscore Kadar. Natalie. At Natalie Hambly. Haiti. At Haiti Island. Fantastic. And as we say, use the hashtag Eyes on Gilead. Eyes on Gilead is produced by me, Fiona Williams, with editing and mixing by Jeremy Wilmot. For more Handmaid's coverage, head to SBS Guide, where you'll find more recommendations of things to watch as you await the next episode of The Handmaid's Tale. Speaking of which, new episodes of Season 3 premiere on SBS and at SBS On Demand every Thursday. And if you want to go back and stream Season 2, you don't have a lot of time left, but the whole season is up at SBS On Demand at the moment. So dive in and enjoy. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Try. Yeah, give it a go. You don't own me. I gotta go. Gonna go bird dog the Canadian Minister of Border Security. Until next time, don't let the bastards grind you down.